As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 12 today. Romans chapter 12. During the uh, weeks between now and Christmas, we're going to take a little break from the book of Luke. We're at the end of chapter 7 in Luke, and we're going to look at some things that revolve around the uh, coming of Christ. And today we're going to talk about some very practical things. In fact, I've entitled the sermon, Learning to Like Your Loved Ones. And uh, we're going to be seeing some practical things in Romans 12 that will help us to learn to enjoy the people that we love the most. How many of you did get to spend time with family over the course of Thanksgiving. I'm glad that most of you got to see your family and be with them. That's always a good thing at Thanksgiving time. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand on this, but during your time with family, how many of us had at least one tense, oh no, I hope they don't go there, cringe kind of moment where you were a little worried that people might not get along and there might be a disagreement within the family. I would imagine that a lot of us had some situation like that during the course of Thanksgiving. You know, disagreements are a part of life. People sometimes don't get along, but they can spin out of control, particularly if we don't handle them in a godly way. And when they do, we can face horrible, horrible consequences. I I was reading that uh, Black Friday, the, the shopping day, that in the last 10 years there have been nine deaths on Black Friday, uh, 102 injuries occur, major injuries occur on Black Friday because people had disagreements, it spun out of control, and then somebody wound up getting hurt. In my neighborhood, my, my wife's on one, of these, on one of these Facebook boards where they like learn everything about the neighborhood. It's like squirrel got loose last night, danger, you know, that kind of deal. But in my neighborhood, through the day of Thanksgiving, there was a police standoff because there was a domestic abuse, a domestic fight going on in the neighborhood. And so like the SWAT team was there and they were telling people, go back in your houses because two people in this house couldn't get along, and they, they were having a major fight. I read an article on the USA Today where this family was really upset because they got disinvited from Thanksgiving because they put on Facebook that they had voted for Trump. And so it caused such a major coup in, in the family, or fight in the family, that they were said, nope, you can't come to Thanksgiving this year. How you respond to difficulty and disagreement in life will in many ways write the story of your life. There will be disagreements along the way, but how you respond to those, the relational disagreements, if you respond to them in in a godly way, those can be the very bumps that allow you to keep climbing in life and becoming the person that God has called you to be. Of course, contrastingly, if you respond to those relational bumps in life in an arrogant, foolish way, They can knock you down, and they can keep you from being the person that God desires you to be. Now, you may remember that a couple years ago, we spent about eight weeks going through Romans chapter 12. The reason why we did that is because it's one of the most practical chapters in all the Bible. If you read the book of Romans, you'll find that the first 11 chapters are like climbing a theological mountain. I mean, they are just full of, of theological meat. There are passages in there that cause you to scratch your head and say, now what's he trying to say here? This is kind of hard for me to grasp. And just as you begin to reach the top of that mountain in chapter 11, you come to chapter 12, and Paul just starts coming at us a rapid fire 
with all these practical truths about how to live out Christianity. Okay, this is what Christianity looks like when you live it out. And so today, I want us to look at 10 practical things that we can see directly from the Word of God about how to like spending time with your loved ones. So look with me, beginning in verse 16 of Romans chapter 12. We'll read the passage, and then we'll kind of work through it. The Bible says, Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. And do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourself. Instead, leave room for his wrath, for it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. So ten things you can do to like being around your loved ones this holiday season. The first thing is, you can agree that family is important. In verse 16, the passage says, be in agreement with one another. Now, Paul is writing to the church, and sometimes even within a church family, there is disagreement. So Paul says the solution to those disagreements is to realize what you agree on. You see, there are so many things that we agree upon. One of the things about being in a church is that you're here with like-minded people who agree as to who God is, agree as to who Jesus is, agree on the gospel. And so as a church, though we come from different backgrounds, though we have different jobs, though we have different gifts, different personality types, we come together because we agree about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And when we are in agreement together, you find that it brings a great deal of harmony to the church body. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to family. Whenever you agree on a basic truth that family is God's idea and it is important, it brings so much harmony and unity to the family. Now, you may never have realized this, but family is a page one truth in Christianity. If you go all the way back to the creation story, you find that he created them in his own image, giving humankind a distinction within the creative order that we were made in the image of God. And then it says he created them male and female. You see, though many think that gender is fluid, in reality, gender is a divine gift from God where he created us male and female And he created us with a compliment as men and women, equal in value, equal in creative uh, 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 worth, come together. There is a divine compliment. You see in the creation story, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, that Adam and Eve are brought together by God. They are husband and wife, and from their union together, 
they will have children. And as they live life together, they will form the very first family. As we begin to unpack that theology in Scripture, beginning on again, page one of the Bible, you find that it is through the marriage relationship of a man and a woman coming together that new life is brought into the world. I don't think I have to explain to you the bees, the birds and the bees today. You understand that. New life is brought into the world. Those children are then nurtured within their family environment where they have a mom and a dad who love each other, are committed to God, who teach the children right from wrong, who teach the children citizenship, who teach the children the basics of who God is and what it means to to love God and who also model for the children what it looks like to love one another, to be committed to each other, to live within the society. And so the children grow up in something we call a family. And then whenever they become adults, they are able to go out into the world and eventually they too marry, have children, and form their own family. This is not accidental. This is part of the divine design of God because at the foundation of society is family. A society will never be stronger than its family. If you want to destroy the, the society, you destroy the family. When you can begin unraveling family from the social order, it will not be long until the society begins to unravel as well. Now, interestingly, if you go back over the last 60, 70 years in American history, one of the primary areas that has been under philosophical attack is the family. There has been a minimization of the need for and the value of the family in our society and an exaltation of individualism within our society so that there is this idea that is frequently taught that you really don't need to value family, that it is kind of an antiquated antiquated, uh, old idea, that it's not that big of a deal, that you as an individual just need to live life on your own terms as a silo unto yourself. And so with that, there has begun to be a social destruction, a crumbling of many of the great uh, foundations that built the country and supported the country because a society is never stronger than its families. Now, you may never have thought of this, but why do you drive hundreds of miles to go home at Christmas and Thanksgiving? Why do you pay, pay those airline fees? Why is it so important to come back and be with people that you love and spend time with family? Because when you do that, you're honoring God. When you do that, it's a small act of worship that acknowledges that family is important, that family is God's idea, that family is something to be as valued, something to be celebrated, and that families should come together and go through life together because it's not an accidental thing that God gave you life and that you were born into a family. And when Jesus talked about God, he talked about him in terms of the Father. And whenever the church is talked about throughout the New Testament, it's frequently talked about through the lens of family. Why? Because it's God's idea. But I find that most disagreements in life ignore the 90% of things that we agree about and then distort the 10% of things that we disagree about. So sometimes it's important to get your camouflage on to round up the bloodhounds and go hunting for the areas upon which you agree. Now, there's a second thing you can do, and that is to refuse to give and receive the gift of pride. 
The Bible says in verse 16, do not be proud, but instead associate with the humble. Pride is to relationships as cancer is to the body. Most arguments never actually try to solve the problem. Instead, what happens in an argument is we begin to take position. Have you ever been in a tug-of-war? Anybody remember back in third grade when they had the tug-of-war? Back then, the losers actually fell in the mud pit instead of getting a participation trophy. But anyway, uh, you know, when you're in a tug-of-war, you dig in and you get a hold of that rope and you kind of do everything you can to hold your position because you don't want to be pulled into the mud pit. Well, that same thing happens in disagreements. We often forget about what we were arguing about. And instead, we just start taking up positions, and we dig our heels in, and we hold our position, and it's not long before we're really not even arguing the point anymore. We begin seeing the other person as the enemy. And it's really easy whenever we've dug in to start attacking people, destroying them, attacking their character, and tearing them down. And we forget about all the things that we agree about, And we start distorting the things over which we disagree. And instead of giving humility, we give them the gift of pride. Because when you dig into a position, what happens is you become prideful about your own knowledge and about your own position. Instead, the Bible says that we should give and receive the gift of humility. It says we should associate with the humble, that we should surround ourselves with people that, that, that are humble, that know who God is, and that have a gracious spirit about them. You see, prideful people tend to run in packs. Why is it that prideful people run in packs? Well, it's easier to deal with one barking dog than it is ten. So what prideful people will do is they will try to recruit you to their pack. They're actually just trying to use you. But they will try to get you to believe like they do, to take up their position, and to use uh, their argument in your own relationships. They try to create a pack in order to tear other people down. Humble people, though, are not weak people. Make sure you get that. Being a humble person does not make you a weak person. In fact, whenever you really put on humility... It is a sign of strength because to be a genuinely humble person, you have to realize I'm not God. Now, that sounds so simple. In fact, go ahead and look at the person sitting next to you. If they're asleep, wake them up. But go ahead and look at the person sitting next to you and say, hey, you're not God. Go ahead. Go ahead. He's like, there's nobody sitting next to me. Okay. Now, that sounds so basic. I'm not God, but that is such a difficult thing for us to grasp. You go all the way back again to the Eden story. When they ate of the fruit, the great temptation was not the snake. The great temptation was if we eat of this fruit, we will be like God. Selfishness and pride are at the root of all sin. And there's this thought that I will be like God. But a humble person understands I'm not, like, I'm not God, and because of that, I need to receive and extend forgiveness in life. Thirdly, a humble person realizes that there's a lot of things God hasn't given me any authority over. I often talk about the three big buckets. You have the the small bucket where God has given you a lot of influence and a lot of authority. Those are the areas of life that you need to concern yourself about. Those are responsibilities that he's given you. 
Then there's a larger bucket that you might have minimal influence over. Something, for example, uh, like, like the election that we just had. You have one vote. I think you should exercise that vote. But that vote is one in 300 million. And so ultimately, you really have minimal influence there. And there's many areas in life where we might have a say, we might have a small voice, but it's a small voice within the community. And we have to realize that there's areas there where we just have to trust God. And then there's this huge bucket in life. If you really stop and think about it, most of life you can't influence at all. And that large bucket of life is where we worry the most. That large bucket of life is where you, must, you have to have the most faith. And a humble person understands there are areas that God has not entrusted me to. And so I'm going to walk in faith and I'm going to trust Him and I'm going to find the freedom that occurs when I quit trying to be God. I quit worrying all the time about things over which God has not given me any influence. Instead, I will trust Him and I am strong because I have faith and I'm not wrapped up in worry all the time. And I can walk with confidence, with quiet confidence in life. Because I know that I have a forgiveness for my past, I have purpose for my present, and I have hope that lasts for all eternity. The Scripture says to associate with humble people, not prideful ones. And there is a practicality here that sometimes you do have to protect yourself a little bit. You can be a forgiving person and not harbor any bitterness or anger, but there are times where healthy boundaries are a good thing. And there's times where you have to make an intentional choice. I'm going to associate with humble people, and I'm going to put a little distance between myself and the prideful individual. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be nice. You can be nice. But what it means is you might have to sit on the other side of the living room. (laughs) You might have to be smart and say, you know what? This isn't the best place for me to sit at the table. I would be better off sitting over here because I want to spend my time associating with humble people instead of constantly being trapped by those who are dripping with pride. Now, there's a fourth thing you can do. Holiday, realize that holidays are not a time for you to try to fix everybody by giving them the gift of you. Okay, verse 16 says, do not be wise in your own estimation. But some of us think that uh, the greatest thing that we can give everybody at Christmas time is the gift of me. You know, I'm going to give them my wisdom and I'm just going to throw this out and everybody's going to be so thankful for it. Well, in 2016, everybody in this room is an information expert. You know why you're an information expert? Because you have Google. And because of Google, you can find out all sorts of things about anything. In fact, I do it all the time. I I seem to Google everything. I'm watching the University of Houston play Memphis on on Friday a couple this weekend. I'm like, okay, Google, who is Coach Tom Herman? He's the coach of the Houston Cougars. Well, no, he's the coach of the Texas Longhorn. No, he's coach of LSU. I don't know. He's he's somebody, you know, but I Google it and I find out who he is. Okay, uh, uh, whenever a couple years ago I hurt my foot running. Well, I found out that my primary care physician is actually Google uh, because I Googled it. And you know, before I ever went to the doctor, I was like, okay, I've got to learn everything. I can learn about it and see if I can fix it. And so first thing I know, Dr. Manita drives you crazy, doesn't it? But the, the first thing I did was I went to Dr. Google and tried to see if I could, I could try to solve my problem. It's easy 
to be an information expert in 2016. Here's reality. You have as much information available to you in a Google search as our grandparents would find in a month in the library. Okay? It's always there. And so our minds are flooded. Sorry about that. Our minds are flooded with information. It's much, much more difficult for us to take this massive amount of information and find wisdom. It's much more difficult to take all the information that we have and turn it into something that actually lives life. Yet a lot of times we, we kind of get full of ourselves and we get puffed up in our own wisdom. And so we walk into the family gathering and we immediately see everybody's not doing it right. And so my job here is to fix them and to extend my wisdom to you. And then you can't figure out why it created a fight. Walk in humility and realize that Christmas time is not the time to fix everybody, okay? Here's a fifth thing. Don't repay evil with evil. That's directly from verse 17. Don't repay evil with evil. When it comes to justice, most people have a Don Corleone philosophy. You remember The Godfather, Don Corleone, and those books? And so the idea is this. If someone is good to me, then I will be good to them. But if someone is bad to me, it will end badly for them. And we become the Godfather. We think to ourselves, it is my job to avenge every wrong that comes our way. But the Scriptures, and okay, this is the Bible, so you've got to wrestle with the Bible, not me on this, okay? The Bible says that instead of repaying evil with evil, we should repay evil with good. Now, it takes a couple things for you to be able to do that. Number one, it takes a faith that God loves you and is in control. Number two, it takes an out-of-control love for other people and a belief that God loves them as much as he loves you. Our students that were here in the 945 service, they uh, began a mantra at camp last year that says you can't glorify God without loving the person in front of you. The person that's right in front of you, learning to love them and learning to try to do what's best for them and to be godly to them is how you ultimately bring glory and honor to God. And there's times where people are unlovable, but it's not your role to play God. It's your role to trust God and to believe that He ultimately can take care of situations. And so that leads us to a sixth thing, and that is that we can give people the gift of respect. Verse 17 says that we should try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. People need to be treated with a sense of honor. It is like air to many people to be treated with respect and honor. Thursday at our Thanksgiving gathering, my father-in-law and my cousin fried a turkey. Has anybody ever seen a turkey fried? You're missing it if you've never seen it, okay? It is like a great picture of redneck America. I mean, it's wonderful to watch a, a turkey get fried. First of all, you take this big vat of usually peanut oil, and you kind of heat it up for like, uh, am I right there, Heath, peanut oil? Uh, For about an hour and a half, you heat up that oil, 
And then once it gets really hot, you take the lid off. And here's, here's what they had. They had this basket, and there was like a coat hanger that had been put on it. I told you, it's kind of Texan-y. But there's this coat hanger, and they take a broomstick, and they, they, they put the turkey in there, and they lift up this basket, and they like dip it into the vat of oil. And then once they get it in there, they carefully close the lid. And they say, why don't they just drop it in? Well, think about it, okay? You know, I mean, it's, it's disastrous if that occurs. And so I'm talking to my, my cousin, and I'm like, uh, this could be dangerous, couldn't it? He says, oh, yeah, it's real dangerous. This is what's so great about it. He's like, in fact, if you don't defrost it correctly, oil will just start spewing everywhere. So I became inquisitive, and I took out Google. And, and I started Googling, you know, deep fryers and turkeys. And here's what I discovered. In our country, every year, there's five deaths that occur from the use of deep fryers. There's about 60 injuries. 900 homes catch on fire from the use of deep fryers, causing $15 million in damage. But don't worry, you're in good hands with Allstate, you know? And, and so, so there's, this, there's this natural danger there. Okay, back to respect. When you treat other people with disrespect, it's like putting a non-defrosted turkey in a deep fryer. Oil spews everywhere. Danger spews everywhere. Things can catch on fire. Suddenly you can have relational infernos simply because you extended disrespect and you were not honorable in the way that you treat people. Now, disrespect comes in all sorts of forms. It can come in cynicism, sarcasm, rolling the eyes, body language, being dismissive. And we disrespect people, and then it causes arguments, and suddenly these small fires, these, the small stuff that's not a big deal, can turn into raging infernos. So the Bible tells us, try to do what is honorable in other people's eyes. Treat people with respect. And then seventh, do, do your part to live in peace. Verse 18 says, if possible, on your part, Live at peace with everyone. Now, several things here. Number one, it's not always possible. Sometimes conflict becomes a healthy part of life. Sometimes in order to get to a solution, you have to go through a conflict. And so it's not always possible for things always to be peaceable. But if possible, on your part, you do what you can to live at peace And then here's the really hard part of the verse, with everyone. You see, it's really easy to live peace with the people that live at peace with the people that think like me, people that look like me, wear their hair like me. It's really easy for me to live at peace with them because, man, we agree on everything. But there's a lot of people you don't agree with on much. But the Bible says, if possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. I cannot control what other people think, say post on Facebook or Twitter. I can't control how other people act. Has anybody in the room ever tried to control another adult? Yeah, you have, okay? (laughs) It doesn't go well, okay? I, I can't control you. I can preach the truth to you, but then ultimately you have to take the Word of God, wrestle with it, and you're going to live your life. All I can do is, with the Holy Spirit's help, I can try to control what I think, how I act, the attitudes that I harbor, and, and how I treat other people. 
I can't change people. Some people are evil. I mean, they're acting evil at least. Some people just love to fight. And life has enough problems in itself that you don't need to go around picking fights. If possible, as much as it's up to you, live at peace with people. Then when you do find yourself in the middle of a conflict, you deal with it with a humble strength. When you do find yourself in the middle of the conflict, you're not irrational, you're not running towards darkness, but you can deal with it firmly, with godliness, and with strength that can take care of the situation. Now there's an eighth thing, and that is to let God be God. In verse 19, the Bible says, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for His wrath, for it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, those of you that attend here every week, or at least once a month, those of you that attend here, you can testify to this. I am not an alarmist in the sense that I don't preach, God is striking you down, brother. Okay? I, I, that's not my weekend, week out mode of oper- operations. But I will say this I have seen times where people act in a harmful way, particularly towards the church or towards a, another Christian. And I have seen the hand of God just take care of it. To be perfectly honest, I've seen it at times in a terrifying way because I've seen people that were acting in ways that they shouldn't act, doing things, saying things that were just ungodly, sometimes trying to tear apart the harmony of a church. And I've seen God take care of the situation in such a way that I just stand back and go, whoa. That was God. Now, sometimes God uses police. Sometimes God uses employers. But I've seen God take care of situations. And the scriptures here admonish us not to be Don Corleone, not to try to avenge yourself, but instead realize that vengeance belongs to God and He will repay the situation. There are some of us in this room that have had other people do terrible things to us. There are people sometimes that we call family that have done things that are wrong. But do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And the Lord is plenty capable of taking care of situations in his time in his own way. Here's a ninth thing. Kill him with kindness. Verse 20 says, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you're reaping fiery coals on his head. You see, your enemy expects you to react with vengeance. Your enemy expects when he's hungry that you'll say, Uh-uh, no turkey for you. Not, I'm not even giving you water. But instead, you respond in the exact opposite way, and it's like you're burning fiery coals of redemption upon his vengeful head. When Jesus said, do not judge lest ye be judged, Jesus didn't mean there's no such thing as right or wrong. There are things in this world that are wrong, but it's not the Christian's job to be the referee. 
Jesus called us to go and make disciples. And that we're not supposed to stop at home. We're supposed to go to the ends of the earth going and making disciples. And so we have a basic responsibility, and that is to point people towards God. You see, the solution to bad behavior is not just behaving better. The solution to bad behavior is heart transformation because bad behavior flows out of a sinful heart. And the only thing that can transform the human heart is the grace of God. So our ultimate job as a Christian is not to simply try to beat people over the head with our Bibles to get them to behave better. Our ultimate call as a Christian is to draw them to the cross so that they can meet the one who changes everything, including their heart. And then out of a heart that has been transformed, behavior changes so that we move from running away from God to running to God. And Christ-like behavior begins to flow in our life. And we're able to not just hear the truth, but obey the truth because the Holy Spirit is alive within us. And so there are a lot of people in your life that need you to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ reaching out to them, and don't be shocked when people that don't know Christ act like sinners. Aren't you glad, though, that as outrageous as the sins of the world are, that God has overcome them with an outrageous love? And sinful people need Christians who will love them enough to show them a God who can bring what they've always wanted, forgiveness what they really need, purpose, and what will fuel them to go through the problems of life, eternal hope. And sometimes they need a Christian like you to extend the helping hand. One final thing, and that is, do not be conquered by evil. Don't let all the sin and injustice in the world around you conquer you. Instead, conquer evil with good. My mind jumps to the passage in John chapter 1 and verse 4, talking about Jesus coming into the world. And it refers to Jesus as the light, how Jesus will bring light with him into the world. It says in verse 4, life was in him and that life was the light of men. So as Jesus came into the world, in him was Life, but we're not just talking about the life of the baby born in Bethlehem. We're talking about eternal life that will come through Christ, through what He does for us. And that that life is ultimately the light of men. And then in verse 5, it says these words, The light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness does not overcome it. You see, the light of Christ is so brilliant that whenever it encounters the darkness of sin, as dark, as unjust, unjust, as evil as darkness can be, it cannot overcome the brilliance of the light of Christ. Yesterday, we had a crisis in the bank's house. We were putting up our Christmas tree, and we discovered that two strands of light are out on the Christmas tree. I suggested that we just not look at that part of the tree, but that didn't go over very well. You can't have a pre-lit Christmas tree that has two strands of light off of it. And so Stacy began unraveling this torturous thing that someone had put together. I mean, it was unbelievable how it was tied in there. 
I mean, I started to take vengeance there, but then I remembered what I was preaching today. And so, so we came to the conclusion that uh, I needed to go up. Well, actually, Stacy told me that I needed to go up to Home Depot and I needed to get a couple strands of Christmas lights. And so I, I did that and I brought it back. You know, throughout this month, you'll see a lot of lights. You'll drive down the street and see Christmas lights. My kids are really into them. Uh, You'll have lights most likely on your Christmas tree. And light is a big part of the story of Christmas. Have you ever thought, what are those lights for? Well, when you see those Christmas lights, they remind you of the light of the world that shines through the darkness. When you turn on that tree, it reminds you of the light of the world that shines into the darkness. And it also ought to remind us that the darkness does not overcome the light. So don't be conquered by evil. You keep doing what is right. You be the example. You be like Christ. You lead people to God. You hold on to the truth, and you show faith in the challenge. You do what is right in the eyes of God, and trust God to be God. Let's shine the lights of Christmas into the darkness with the realization that darkness will not overcome the light. Amen? Let's stand together as the band comes. We come to a time of commitment. I'll be here at the front. If there's anything I can pray with you about, it's always my joy to do so. It may be that today is the day that you need to make that decision to become a Christian and place your faith in Christ. I would love to talk with you during this next song. I'll also be here after the service as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that we've seen in Scripture today. It was so full of truth that uh, it's almost overwhelming how the truths just jump off the page. But I pray that what we read today will not just land in our minds and that we will leave here thinking, oh, those were some good thoughts. But may we leave here with our life changed. May we leave here determined that through your power, through the Holy Spirit's guidance, that we will treat people differently because what we have seen in Scripture. I pray that we will truly love our loved ones and that we will like spending time with them. I pray, Lord, that we might squeeze the joy of Christmas for every ounce that it has. And I ask, Lord, that you will help us to see that we won't find that joy through stuff that is here today and given away five years later, but that we will find the joy of Christmas through knowing you and serving you, being like you. We will find the joy of Christmas whenever we engage in relationships with people that we will be with for all eternity, proclaiming the greatness of the great I Am, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, and the one who has brought light into the world and overcome the darkness. Help us, Lord, to be the people of Christ in every area. It's in Jesus' name we pray and worship. Amen.